The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every week, Wednesdays 10 to 11 Eastern Time, and that's live. And at the end of the day, we archive the show, and then you can download it on your computer and listen to it on your MP3. So this morning I have two guests. My first guest is Dr. Matthew Edlund. He's a nationally renowned regeneration rest and sleep expert. He is the director of the Center for Circadian Medicine and author of Healthy Without Health Insurance. He was an Ivy League medical school professor and a syndicated health columnist and hospital medical director. So he has lots of credentials. My second guest is going to be another doctor, but he's a psychologist, Dr. Louis Primavera, and he's the author of The Retirement Maze. Uh, he's an expert on, uh, on, on jobs, actually, and he's going to tell us uh, how to go through a healthy retirement. But first, Dr. Edlund, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, thanks for having me. So healthy without health insurance, and, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before we got on the air. Uh, you know, we're not a very healthy society. I don't think that uh, that's a big surprise to you or me or to anyone else. So uh, your book is really important because I, you're telling us we can be healthy. It's our choice, and uh, we can be healthy even through our 90s. But if you take a look at our Everybody, you know, you take a look around us, it seems to me everyone is overweight. Not everyone, but what, half the population at least is overweight, um, obese? At least 68% by standard measures, yes. Okay. All right. So let's talk about being healthy without health insurance. Well, one of the reasons I wrote this book is that people were coming to me where, where I practice medicine in southwest Florida and saying, I'm losing my job, I'm losing my insurance, I'm probably going to lose my house. What can I do? What can I do to get myself healthy? And the answer that I came back is I have to come up with something that's clear, easy, simple, that pretty much everyone can do. Because health is about lifestyle. Lifespan is about lifestyle. And a lot of what you do in your daily life will increase the odds of giving you a healthy life. I'm not saying that everybody who does everything, quote, right, unquote, is going to have a great outcome because that's why we have health insurance. People get unlucky. The whole point of insurance is that the fortunate pay for the unlucky, for the five-year-old who has sarcoma, for the 20-year-old who gets hit in a car wreck. But what we have to do is increase the odds and do that by regenerating and renewing and rebuilding our bodies the way they are built. And the beauty of the human body is that within three to four weeks, most of us is new. We communicate ourselves very rapidly and very powerfully. And if we know some very basic, simple facts on how to do that, we can do it much more effectively. How unhealthy is this country? Uh, we rank 50th in the world in lifespan, according to the CIA. We spend about twice as much as our competition. So if you're a salesman going out and you're trying to sell American health care, 
you're going to have to say, okay, I've got the best stuff in the world. True, it costs twice as much as pretty much any of my competition and a lot more than most. True, we rank 50th in the world, but we're still the best. That's crazy. The level of denial in this country is very high because health is about sanitation, nutrition, vaccination, education, lifestyle. Healthcare gets in there, but only at the tail end. How we live, how we function is the critical factor in keeping us healthy. But you just mentioned something. Okay, we have, and if we read your book, we have the facts about how to do this, how to be, make, live a healthy lifestyle, make healthy choices. But what about that whole issue of denial? Why aren't we doing it? Don't we have to start there? I mean, we have the information available, uh, but we somehow are not paying attention to it as a society. Well, I would blame a lot of different things, but the first thing I would blame would be the medical model because our medical model is based on sickness. It's not based on health. Most of us tend to see our bodies as machines. Machines rust. Machines decay. We don't. We're alive. We're living beings. We renew. We regenerate. We rebuild ourselves. But our whole healthcare system is based on this idea that somehow you're going to have this kind of rusting, decaying picture, sometimes fast, sometimes slow, and all that we can hope for is absence of disease. That's a very impoverished model of how to do anything. And I think that if people could get to the point where they realize how much of their body is renewed, how they're constantly updated, how with each day when they wake up in the morning, they literally have a rewired brain, then some some of that denial could be dealt with. But the other part of that denial is just a matter of our political process. And I think one of the reasons our health system is so impaired is in part because our politics is broken. Uh, We can see it in Washington every day, but we also have a rent-to-own political culture. Uh, We have the best government that money can buy. And when you've got 18% of the total economic products of the United States stuck in health care. There are so many interests that don't want reform, that don't want change, that don't want people to learn how to live healthily, that they can have a massive impact on what happens to the rest of us. And just watch our advertising to kids in terms of food. Just look at what we do in terms of what crops we subsidize and what we don't. Food policy is health policy. A healthy economy requires a healthy population. But there are a lot of people who will lose money if that happens. Yeah, well, you say, doctor, that is is it all about the money? I mean, there's so much money involved, so many people making so much money on us not making healthy choices, including the the healthcare industry. Industry, yeah. And of course, and, you know, what what I will find daily is people often come to me and they talk to me about their spiritual life. Sadly, I think for a lot of people, the real deity in this country is money. The real worship is for cash rather than for us as a society, rather than for what the founding fathers were talking about. When they talked about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, their definition of happiness was well-being. It was well-being not just of individuals, but well-being of the population. And their sense of freedom was not just, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, but it was responsibility, accountability to others, the whole idea of virtue. That seems completely gone from us now. And we have to start going back and recognizing what really matters as a community and as a society if we are going to get past the high levels of denial that we have for so many of our problems. 
Well, what do you do? What does the average person do? You sit down at dinner and you're looking at, you talk about being a healthy society and uh, doctors only want to see me when I'm sick. They're really not interested, I find, in hearing about how well I eat or whether I exercise uh, and they're more interested. And this is a, you know, this is anecdotal, but it's personal and it's uh, the first thing they want to do if there's anything wrong is to give me medication, to give me a drug, to medicate. Well, first they want to do procedures and, 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 and procedures. Get, get some devices because that's where the real cash generation takes place. Yeah, I mean, you, what, what happens now is general physicians in this country are actively being bid out by hospitals so that they can use them as cash generators because they're referral sources. Of course, this is completely crazy. Of course, this is forgoing the whole idea of what health is about. But yeah, your docs have not been trained to help people regenerate their bodies. They haven't been trained in what health is about. What they've been trained in is sickness. And that's one of the reasons why people, to a certain degree, are going to have to do this on their own. Because the simple stuff how you eat, how you move, how you rest, how you socialize are critical factors in keeping the population healthy. And I don't mean healthy in the sense of you're going to necessarily live longer, though that certainly is the case. I'm talking about health in terms of real health, physical health, mental health, social health, spiritual health. That's the real health that we need to be aiming for, not just this image of, well, my numbers are good when I go see the doctor. So what do we do? You have it sort of outlined in your book as kind of the step-by-step program. Do we want to talk about that a little bit, like really specific? It's really quite simple. The concept is simple. Use your body the way it's built. Use your body for what it's evolved to do. Did we evolve for the Internet age? No. We have hunter-gatherer bodies that are trying to live in the Internet age. And the miscasting, the misfit, the mismatch is so great that we end up with huge numbers of diseases of civilization. Now, what do you do when you have a fish that's out of water? You splash it back with water. What we need to do is just look at what our bodies are really built to do and do some very basic things. And what are they? One, in terms of food, basically eat whole foods and eat a lot of nutritional variety. The longest-lived populations in the world right now are in the United States. They're Asian-American women in metropolitan New York City. The expected lifespan of Asian-American women in Suffolk County is 95.6 years. It's not because of their health care. It's because of lifestyle. Two, in terms of physical activity, move whenever you can. We're talking now on the phone. I am pacing. I am moving. Basic, simple things, just moving around, walking, standing, standing and typing at a desk, can have a much, much larger health effect than most people know. Because what most people don't know is that sitting itself is a risk factor for death. Third, rest. That's been the giant elephant in the room that's not been really acknowledged. If people don't sleep, they don't stay well. If you take an animal and you refuse to let it sleep, it will die just as if it's taken away from food. Rest, not just passive rest like sleep, but rest active rest, physical, mental, social rest, is critical to keeping people well. Things like having a conversation with a friend, taking a walk after lunch are really healthy things to do, things that will not only make you feel better, but will actually grow your new brain cells. Fourth, just having a regular pattern to the day. Time rules life. If people can do things in a regular pattern, keep their body clocks going, keep the timing mechanism proper, they can often have a much, much easier life. So it's not complicated stuff. 
well, you need nutritionally. But the stuff is not complicated. You're right, and it seems fairly simple. But I keep going back to, okay, this is what we should do, but how do we do it? I mean, we kind of have to change that our, uh, the paradigm. I don't know how else to say it, but we just I mean, We do have to change the health paradigm. We have to have a paradigm where instead of looking at sickness and absence of sickness is the goal, we have to recognize that we have basically new bodies in three to four weeks, that what we do is what we become, and that if we can just get our brains around the fact that we can change our own internal wiring, that we can change what we ourselves are by virtue of how we live, we can have a much, much more hopeful, much more optimistic view on what we can do with ourselves and the people around us. How do you get people to do it? You start having them do simple things and see if they feel better. And why do you want them to do this? Because not only is it simple, but it's also cheaper. In many cases, eating nutritionally varied foods, whole foods, is not more money. It's less money. In many cases, self-transport, where you walk back and forth to a restaurant or you try as much as possible to walk back and forth to a workplace, will not only be good for your body, but it will be good for your health, your, your pocketbook, and the environment. All these things can win simultaneously if people just recognize health is about how you live. Have you, as a physician now, have you been successful when you, I mean, on a day-to-day basis, treating patients who do this or are able to, to actually, you know, follow this plan, follow the program? Give us examples. Okay, well, I have to do it myself. Um, and I've had my own medical issues through the years, which in many cases I found I had to get through without the healthcare system because it turned out to be mainly useless. You know, I'm going to but, respond to that because, you know, I go to a primary care physician and, you know, your basic physicians, you know, yearly for checkups, and I see the people that they hire in their office, and I'll often see, you know, people who are 100, 200 pounds overweight checking me in or mm-hmm. nurses or physician's assistants or all other healthcare personnel, and, and all of them look so unhealthy. You know, if you're talking about uh, uh, serving by example, I always wonder about that. Why, well, you please know, don't be prejudiced against people who weigh more, because if you are, then you're going to have to be prejudiced against most of the population. Uh, we, we simply don't have bodies that are built for 21st century America. And that's the point. I often find it bizarre, but it's true. I literally have to train people how to eat, how to sleep, even how to socialize today because these are no longer normal, absolutely ordinary activities for them. They don't know how to do it anymore. They want to look at their uh, email all through the night. They, they want to be able to sit in a chair for 12 or 14 hours working or doing video games. This is not what human bodies are built to do. And, yes, I do have success with people in the sense that, for example, I will treat a lot of sleep apneic patients, and in many cases I can get them off CPAP devices if I can just get them to lose enough weight. And how do I do that? I get them to eat whole foods. I get them to walk after every meal. I get them to socialize and get interested in what they're eating and what it does. And if I can just keep them going and doing that, not only do they start to feel better and feel more whole, but in many cases their airway starts to open up and I can actually get rid of the CPAP device, at which point they're even happier. Yeah, there's so you might thousands of things you can differently, do. Doctor. Let's say a patient comes into your office with whatever their health issue is. You must be asking very different kinds of questions than, say, the kinds of questions I feel that my physicians ask me. Of course, such but that's my the numbers, problem with what medicine. What kind of medication we're, am I on? And, you know, that's it. Right. We're, we're dealing with sickness. We're not dealing with health. 
The whole system is based on health care, which looks only at sickness management. We have a model of illness, which is literally a dead model. It looks at the body as a machine. Machines are dead. This model is wrong. We're alive. We're new. We remake ourselves, reinvent ourselves. That's what the human body is great at. And what you want to ask people is, what are you doing now, today, this hour, this day, that's going to help regenerate your body? That's what medicine should be doing. So then you have to start in the medical schools, don't you? I mean, isn't that where it begins in terms of training these new doctors into this new model? I mean, you call the outmoded model the degeneration model. I would say that you have to start with the population in general because, as you know, trying to change the medical profession is very often a very, very slow process. No, what we've got to do is recognize that a healthy economy requires a healthy population, that for our survival, for our economic competitiveness, we have to start thinking in terms of making everybody healthy. This is something Bismarck figured out in the 1880s in Germany when they started out with these programs. This is why out of the developed countries in the world, there are 33 and 32 of them have some kind of national health service, and I leave it to your imagination to figure out which one doesn't. We have to see that having a healthy economy requires us to have a healthy population, and a healthy population is not just a happier population, but it's people who are more productive, more creative, absolutely necessary in a knowledge industry-type world that we're in. And that in order to have a healthy population, we also have to have a healthy environment. If you live in a toilet, you get sick. These are basic things, but we don't think in terms of health. We think in terms of health care, and health care even with giant amounts of money, will not give us the health that we want. I think when we think of health care and taking care of ourselves, too, uh, we relate it primarily to our physical self, and we don't really, I don't think we understand that, that when we are, when we eat the wrong things, when we overeat, overeat, when we're obese, that it also affects our brains and our ability to think and be vital and to come up with new ideas and be creative and do well in school. So it's oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, that's it's all my system. body thing. The body is basically an information processing system. Let's look at something as simple as food, okay? It turns out that when you eat any kind of food, it's a dead animal or a dead plant, you're eating the genetic material of that plant. And it's been found that what you will often take in now are microRNAs, pieces of genetic material that will go into your blood and automatically and immediately start changing your own genetic expression. Food is not just about protein and carbohydrates. Foods are about thousands of different substances. And the conditions in which you have a food, if you give people the same meal at the same time, but you have them eat in a red room rather than a blue room, they eat a third more. If people eat late at night, they will tend to get much fattier and have a much greater tendency towards looking pre-diabetic than if you have them eat in the morning. All of this is part of a vast information cascade. That's what we do. Give the body the right information. Give the body the right tasks. It will regenerate right. We are now in the information age. We know that the universe is information. We know that information rules the world. I think if we can point out to people that if they give the body their own correct information, the right kinds of information for them, they can regenerate and renew themselves much more effectively. And that is something that I think, frankly, the public will have in many ways an easier time getting to than the medical profession. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we have to do both. I think it's not just kind of unilateral, is it? I mean, don't we have to work on all of us uh, 
simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, simultaneously, and this is living the regener- regenerative way, as you call it, which I think would, um, but it's very difficult still, and I'm going you know, to do that. I mean, I just took a road trip from Maine to New York, and we, we mm-hmm. stopped on the highway to get, just to get something to eat or drink, mm-hmm. and there really wasn't anything to buy or to eat or drink that wasn't, uh, you know, a chemical. It wasn't processed. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there was maybe two oranges and a banana, and that was it. Food policy is health policy. We have had government subsidies for stuff that is making us an obese and diabetic society. And I ask people the question every day. I said, do you want to prevent diabetes in children, or do you want to spend hundreds of billions of dollars treating it? That's what all this is about. This is about using our heads to prevent problems so that we don't have to spend money on them, so that we can prevent disasters before they even happen in any form. To do that, you have to think of a regenerative model of health. And it's all about health. It's not about health care. I've watched the debates that have been going on after the Affordable Care Act uh, was accepted grudgingly by the Supreme Court. They make it out that health care is equivalent to health. That is simply untrue. You know, I was in uh, South Korea last summer in Seoul. Good. And yeah. uh, it, they're, they're, they, as you're talking, it seems to me that that country is sort of an example of what you're talking about. I mean, everybody, not Some yes, some no. They're thin. Everybody, the children are thin. You don't see obese children running around. They look healthy. They look bright-eyed. They look out there. There Mm -hmm. isn't a a lot of people who are overweight. I'm not sure what their health care system is. You probably know better than I, but um, it, it just seemed like such a contrast to that society, you know, it's a, it's a, Seoul is a city of what, 15, 14 million people. Um, and yeah. if you can, yeah. And it's, the whole area is about 40% of the uh, Korean population. Yeah. And it's, most of the world doesn't do what we do. Most of the world figured out a long time ago that health is more important than health care. That if you do have a universal health system, it's not only going to save you lives, but it's going to save you money and be productive for your economy. But we do that here. We have a lot of interests that are much more interested in seeing their own feather bedding go on than seeing what's going to be best for the population as a whole. And until we can get our corporations to the understanding their money hand over fist in many cases this kind of healthcare system, that they could be a much more efficient system that would help out everybody, I'm not sure that we're going to be able to change things that much. Well, what about this? If it's all about the money and people benefiting from people being unhealthy, no. uh, how about uh, figuring out a system where you benefit and make a lot of money from people being healthy, those same institutions that are preventing or us from being healthy or living a healthy lifestyle or making healthy choices? You can do that if you look at larger populations. You can do that, for example, that's what Kaiser Permanente was meant to do starting after World War II. We could do that. We could incentivize things for a healthy population, but we don't tend to think that way. And we also run into political beliefs that this is somehow impinging on people's freedom. You know, people tell me, what are you talking about? How dare you say these things about children. Children should be able to eat whatever they want, to which my response is they will eat what they are told to eat. And if they're getting three or four or 5,000 TV ads saying that they have to eat huge amounts of high fructose corn syrup in order to feel happy, guess what? That is what they're, what they're going to eat. We don't allow us 
to sell alcohol to five-year-olds. We don't sell tobacco to 10-year-olds. We don't sell to, uh, cocaine to adolescents, but we're perfectly happy giving foods that will make kids obese and diabetic and subsidizing them with government tax dollars. Does that make any sense at all? No, it doesn't make sense. And I think another reason that sometimes parents feed their kids that stuff, but they not only see it advertised on television, but it's also easy. You know, it's easy to eat. It's the, but, you know. Well, there's a lot of things that are easy until it turns out that you have to take care of all the hard choices that you've made. Food policy is health policy. Food, energy, water are inextricably linked. Energy requires lots of water. Food requires lots of water. Human beings require lots of water to drink. Do we put these together as a policy issue? Virtually not at all. All of these are health issues. A healthy economy requires a healthy population. We have to start thinking about ourselves in terms of the future and seeing these as interlocked systems because that's exactly what they are. But there are many people who are making money in the system in one way or another we're going to prevent us from having that view. So tell us, doctor, um, you are the director of the Center for Circadian Medicine. What is that? I assume this is, you know, the kind of practice, obviously, that you have is you're practicing what you preach. How do you do that? Well, circadian medicine is body clock medicine. Are there any other practices like that around the country? Not yet. I'm hoping that to change rather rapidly. I'm hoping that docs will finally start seeing the light and that what they really want to do is make people as healthy as possible rather than just treat them when they're sick. How I make a living myself is I usually make most of my money as a sleep doctor, but a lot of what I do as a sleep doctor automatically involves getting people healthy so that I can get them to sleep, so that I can get them to live the way they want to live. If you use your body the way it's built, you can accomplish a lot of things. Ordinary actions produce extraordinary results if you put them together in the right plan. It's all about giving the body the right kind of information. What do your colleagues think of your book, and and what do they think of you? (laughs) (laughs) What do my colleagues think of my book? They look upon it in some (laughs) cases very favorably. In other cases, they look on it as a curiosity. Uh, in some cases, they tell me that, uh, you know, we just have to get through the day. And, and that's what they are. They're trying to get through a health care system that's so convoluted, so crazy, so insanity-inducing, that they often wonder how they're going to survive every 24-hour day. So for them, it's much more, I have a life to lead right now where I've got all these demands on me, and I've got to do this. I'd love to do some parts of this, but I don't have time. And that's what we've got. We've got a system that does not incentivize health. We incentivize procedures. We incentivize diagnostic tests. We do not incentivize, as you point out, making people healthy and keeping them healthy. But that would be good for each one of us and for the whole population. And one of the reasons I wrote this book was so that people could do it on their own because they're not going to get that help from their doctors. Well, it's a great book, and let's see, we only have about a minute left, so let's... uh... Uh, just meant, obviously mentioned the book again, Dr. Matthew Edland, and uh, his new book is Healthy Without Health Insurance. Protect Yourself, Doctor. What website can we go to? And I, you, I assume you can buy the book, bookstores everywhere and online. 
Well, you can, you can get it at two of my websites. One is wegethealthynow.com. You can get it at therestdoctor.com. We're running a series of stories on health insurance, my story, where people write in with their own issues and their own stories of what happens with health insurance. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it in Barnes & Noble. And I wrote it to be less than the price of an ice cream cone. So if you can get it as an ebook, it's two ninety nine. All right, but so if no, you want no, to no go to excuse, right, for not, you know, it's not, you can't say it's too expensive. Well, we have to say goodbye. It's been great having you on the show this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Matthew Edland, author of Healthy Without Health Insurance. Coming up next is Dr. Louis Primavera, and he is a psychologist, author of The Retirement Maze. Did you know that only about half of retirees think that their lives improved after they retired? We're going to be talking about this. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. What does the new health care law mean to you? Why is the country facing a deepening deficit? Can it be reversed? If education is important to fund, shouldn't we insist on seeing results? Do we have a workable energy policy? Who's calling the shots? Tune in to In the Public Interest with host Mike Hudson. We'll cover public policy, everything from taxes and spending to health care and other threatened entitlements. If it's in the public interest, it's in your interest to know. In the Public Interest can be heard live every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The inner workings of the mind and body are a fascinating study into who we are, our motivations, creativity, wants, and fears. Is everyone capable of great atrocities as well as great accomplishments? What haunts or helps us pursue the things we desire? We all want to know why we do the things we do and what makes us unique, but even more, we want to know what to do next. For answers to these questions, tune in to The Mind of the Matter with Dr. Susan Hickman on the Voice America Variety Channel every Thursday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific. Join us every week as we help you master the mind of the matter. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and we're back uh, with my second guest, Luis Primavera, and he's author of The Retirement Maze. That's his new book, Ph.D., Psychologist, the Dean of the School of Health Science at Truro College in New York City. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Doctor. It's a pleasure to be on with you, Catherine. Okay, well, I'm a baby boomer, and I know this book is probably specific 
for baby boomers because uh, they're all starting to retire now and thinking they've been waiting for 20 years to 30 years to retire and everything is going to be great and wonderful and happy and they're going to be able to do what they want and they're going to be really satisfied, but I guess that's not really the case, right? That's not really the way it works. You know, retirement is an interesting phenomenon. If you go back 30, 35 years ago, people retired, lived five, six, seven years, and then passed away. Well, now, you know, life expectancy is much, much longer. And uh, retirement now has become a stage of life, much like when you go from childhood to adolescence. Uh, going from working to retirement is, is, is the same kind of developmental change. I don't like the word retire. There's something about the word <laughs> sounds like retire. You know, what are you going to do, go sit on a... But, you know, a porch in Florida and, and swing around for the next 50 years. I mean, reti- is that a good word, retire? I think it's probably, you know, you're right. I never <laughs> thought of it, but you're exactly correct. In that retire sounds like you stop. But, in yeah. fact, that's the problem, is that when people don't really think much about retirement, in fact, we found that only one out of ten people really thoroughly plan all aspects of their retirement. And these are even people who, who, who are major managers and people who do things for a living, who actually plan for a living. They, they, they don't plan. They don't think about it. And when you talk to some of them, they say, I say, well, what will you do when you retire, when you stop working? Maybe that's a better way to think about it. And, and they say, well, I'll go play golf. That's what I'm dying to do. I can't wait to play golf. You say, but you're going to play golf seven days a week? And, you know, for the next 30 years? <laughs> So then that gives them sort of a pause for thought because, in fact, you know what's interesting? I was, I was actually talking to someone who told me about someone who loved to play golf, a major executive, retired, and, and then started playing golf, and after a while, hated it. Well, he only liked to play golf, and I think this is what you're talking about. You know, he liked to play golf while he was the CEO of the corporation. Correct. Yeah, when it was in tandem with that. But then when you're stuck with just playing golf every day, it, but, it's not so appealing. My guess is he made a business out of it. <laughs> and, you know, and after a while, became as frustrated with that as, as, he, as, as he did with, you know, with business. All right, let's talk specifically then, because this is really the things that people don't think about when they re- right. retire or stop working. Right. Uh, they stop working, they, they've had interests, okay, fine, but they can't do those all the time, sure. seven days a week. So, but there are some really serious things that happen. Like, can you talk about in the book, loss of identity? Like, how, you know, well, what? actually, you know, it's kind of an interesting fact. If you walk into a social gathering and you say, hi, hi my name is John, someone says to you, John, what do you do? You know, well, I'm this, I'm that, I do this. And, in fact, in this society, we really put a great deal of, of, of us and who we are based on what we do. So when you, go into, when, you, when you stop working, then you're not that anymore. In fact, it's kind of interesting. If you meet people who were recently retired, they'll often say, well, I was. Yeah, I, I used to. Say, and it's very interesting. They will say, I, I was a doctor. Or, I, well, you were, you're still a doctor. Or I yeah, was a lawyer. Or, I was a you know, business exactly. person or whatever it is. You're still that. But um, it's true. And I think in, you're in New York City, and I know that's one place where uh, a lot of your credibility as who, to who you are has to do with what you do. And, Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, how do we... So what do you do in terms? Well, know, you have to you, you you have to kind of figure out and re- it's it's like reconstructing yourself. That's why we think about it as a developmental stage. You, you have to think about now. Here I am, and this here are the things that are open to me, and here are the things I might want to do. And how am I going to define myself? How am I going to structure my life 
so that I have some kind of identity that I feel comfortable with. Give us an example. Give us an example who someone, you know... Well, uh, if, you, if you see, for instance, there, there are some people who find something to do, something that they find very, very uh, satisfying. For instance, in our book, we talk about a police captain who, 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 who uh, searched around for a number of things. And by the way, searching around and experimenting is a key feature here. Uh, but he searched around and finally got together with a, with a number of other, other people in this field, and they look for missing persons. And he doesn't make any money at it, but he finds it extremely rewarding, and, and, and it gives him a sense of identity. That's what he does, and he feels very good about it. See, that's a good example because I think taking those skills that you used while you were working and getting paid for it and really just translating them into volunteer kinds of things or mentoring, uh, but you still have those skills, but you, it gives you a lot more flexibility if you don't have to go to work every day, uh, and use those same skills but use them in a different way that perhaps gives you more freedom to pursue other things as well. That's exactly correct. Mentoring is a great way to use your skills, particularly with people who have a great deal of skill. You know that 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 they can offer it to to uh, people will love to have you as a as a as a mentor, and you'll feel good about what you do, and you're able to use all that experience and trans and you know, help transfer it to someone who's beginning or you know someplace in their career. So what else can they do? What I mean, I haven't. I was I was thinking about this uh, when I uh, knew I was going to have you on the show. But I think one of the other things, often many of us, there are things that we have wanted to do that we don't have time to do while we are working. And if you really write out a list of those things too, and you can pursue those as well. I don't mean just playing golf or tennis, but uh, other things perhaps that are. Uh, Maybe risks that you never took while you were working. I Absolutely mean, yeah. correct. You know, searching and experimenting is very important. We're really blessed having the Internet. So you can get lots of information. You know, you can get lots of information, explore things and try things. And what we find is that people who, who, who search and, and experiment, because a lot of times they have an idea of what they'd like to do, they start doing it, and they say, well, maybe, you know, maybe that's not really what I want to do. So being willing to keep searching and looking and experimenting is extremely important, and those people who do that end up much better off. What about, okay, that's the loss of identity, and you have lots of suggestions and information in the book, but now let's go to a different one, because you also mentioned that oftentimes once you retire, not retire, I don't want to say that word again, once you stop working. How about that? How about if we agree on that? Okay. There can be a deterioration, as you call it, a deterioration of your marriage and social life. So how does that happen? Oh, yes. Well, think about if you just... If anyone is still working, think about, make a list of all your friends. You'll probably find close to half of your friends are, are those people who you work with. And so immediately you will lose those friends. Now people usually have some contact, and we encourage them to continue to have some contact with the people who they work, but that will wear out at some point. You know, in fact, you know, people will still like you and be friendly with you, but some of them, some of those relationships were based simply on working together. So it's important that you, that, that, that you think about that and that you try to increase your social circle. One thing we recommend is you probably have friends you haven't seen in a long time, but really found, you know, pleasant and great to be with. Reconnect with those people. And, yeah, okay, that's your social life, and yes, reconnect to different people. Uh, let's talk about marriage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I spent 25 years as a marriage counselor, I've been married 45, and, and I, know a bit, I know a bit about this area. When people retire, it changes the whole dynamic. Depending on what 
let's say a husband retires or a wife retires, there's a certain dynamic. There's a certain way that people have, have thought about their lives, have, have, you know, who does what in the house, and that kind of thing. All that's going to change now because somebody, and in fact, it's better, by the way, both people retire together. But even if they do, things are going to change. Okay, and and in fact, we interesting story. But why do you that we, say I have to say, doctor? Why do you have to retire at the same time? Why, why is that better? Well, what we uh, that's not actually a recommendation. That was something that that we found is that people who retire at the, at the same time seem to do better. Couples who retire because the changes come together. And they can work on their they can work on their stuff together. While if someone's still working and someone's retiring, they're going to spend more time apart. And and by necessity, the person who's retired has to make different kinds of adjustments. So it's a different kind of adjustment, is what exactly. you're saying. Okay, and they have to do. I mean, I, you know, as a social worker, I hear this. What comes up in my mind is they have to do a different dance. You know, they've had this dance for twenty years or twenty-five exactly right. years. Time for a new dance, and you really have to be serious about addressing the issues associated with that. And I don't think everybody does necessarily. That's what no, you're you saying. see, and yeah, and, and in fact, that's what we mean about so few people think about these things in advance. That was the one of the one of the reasons why we wrote the book, so that people would think about all these different areas, and, 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 and think about the kinds of adjustments uh, that they have to make. I mean, if, for instance, we, 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 we have a story in the book where a woman reports that she had lunch with five or six of her uh, friends, and they were talking about their husbands retiring, and they weren't all happy because they said, oh, things are going to change. You know, things are going to change dramatically. Well, how about this? A lot of, and this may be more in the traditional, I don't know if it's so much so true with the younger baby boomers anyway, right. but, you know, if uh, he, if he retires, then he's, I don't have to spend all day with him, and I'm not <laughs> so sure I want to do that. Right. But uh, even, but even for instance, if he's a, if he's a top-notch manager, he comes home, what's he going to try to manage? He's not, going to, he's not going to give up those tendencies so easily, is he? No, he's going to try to manage the household, which per, usually, in that case, the, the woman and the, or the, the wife has been handling and managing. Uh, true. Uh, so that and, 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 and even if they had a more equal relationship where they both did things, the fact of the matter is someone is still working and says, well, you have all this time. Maybe you should do more of those kind of things. See, the point is that they've got to sit down, like in any change, and they've, and they've got to renegotiate. And, you know, I, I think of it as, a, you know, that every relationship has a contract, and when a life event changes, then you've got to renegotiate that contract. Yeah. And renegotiate the contract and redefine your roles. That's Precisely. It. I mean, you know, Precisely. you have these roles for so many years, and then you have to redefine them. You almost, um, it's almost recommended that perhaps you should go into counseling and to, I would, you know, to be able to do this, because I don't know that everybody's equipped to be able to do this on their own necessarily. I think I think you're absolutely right. In fact, if you look at some of the things that that we found, we 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 found a, lot, a fairly high prevalence of, of 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 people who are depressed. Uh, the increased use of of uh, medications and the symptoms that you and I both know as fairly fairly classic people who are depressed, and and so. Counseling can often be helpful. Obviously, not everyone needs counseling, but if you find yourself stuck and you find yourself you really can't get anywhere, then I think a good therapist could help you. I think another one of the problems is that um, very often couples who stop working and or, or retire uh, 
that they have different expectations for their retirement, and so that changes yeah. everything too. You've got the one person who says, "I have, you know, I've lived in in Boston for, and I'm cold, and I don't want to live here anymore, and I want to move to Phoenix." And the spouse or the partner says, "No, I don't want to do that." Yeah. So it creates some really big potential life changes. You're you're exactly right, and the sooner you start talking about those and working those out, the better off you'll be. You're exactly right that people have people not only have different expectations; they often have very unrealistic expectations. I have uh, friends who have been in situations like that, and it, it's interesting. I find the uh, oftentimes the the, the wife um, will want to move to where her children, children. who have where her children are or where her grandchildren are and, you know, kind of want to follow them around. And that's not necessarily true of her partner. So yeah, there you go. That's, that's, a, that's a very good example. And we also find that if you only focus on relationships with family, you won't be as well adjusted. That if you just, if you, if, if you say, well, I'm going to spend all my time with just my grandchildren, if people don't find, you know, after a while that begins to wear out because you really need a more balanced life. Balanced life, I think, is the key. So key is right. Exactly yeah. correct. Balanced life. And we have to do that throughout our whole life. And I think one of the things you cover in the book, which is true, uh, not, you know, we live longer. I mean, if you retire or you stop right. working at 50, 55, or 60, you might have another, say, 30 or 40, even 40 Good. years left. But it's not just the years left. They're healthy years. I mean, you have a lot of energy. You have yes. a lot, you know. So that's a whole other issue because you don't, Really get, you know, if you're in relatively good health, you have almost the same energy that you had at 40. It's, it, 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 it can really present a challenge. Now, what do you do with all that energy? I mean, you know, I mean, as we get older, we spend more time going to see our physicians, obviously, but, but many of us are in fairly decent health. And so now you've got all this energy that you poured into your job. Now, now you have to decide where you're going to pour that energy. And as, and as Rob says, who's one of the other authors of the book, is one of the things that, that you begin to realize is a lot of hours in the day. Yeah, that's true. There are a lot of hours in the day. And you don't want to do busy work. I think that's the other thing. You don't want to do, end up doing things just to keep yourself busy and to fill up the hours in the day. At least I think that many people or most people want to be productive in some ways. So absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely correct. That busy I mean, we all have busy things we have to do. You go to the cleaners, you do that. But you can't, that can't be everything you do. That'll wear out very quickly. Do you think it's different for people who live in cities as opposed to people who live in the suburbs or people who live in rural communities? Are there any differences in those areas? Yeah, I would imagine that, you know, depending on what you consider enjoyable and what's available to you. Now, we could say someone who lives in a large city like Los Angeles or New York has more things available to them. But if you're not really interested in those things, like, for instance, the theater or those kind of things. And, again, you can't do those things all the time. But, but being in different parts of the country, I would imagine people have different expectations as to what leisure means. Give us some examples in the book. I mean, you gave us the one of the, of the police, the policeman, which was right. a really good one. Some other examples of people who have been in different types of work or different types of professions, how they've been, like, creative and sat down and really thought about what they well, were going to do and translated their skills into something else. Well, let's take one of the uh, – Rob, who's one of the authors of the book, who was a major marketing researcher and uh, retired at 51, very successful, and started a bunch of little businesses and closed them down and said, 
what is it that I can do? What is it I can do? Rob, by the way, happened to be my first PhD student. And we've, we, we've been friendly for many, many, many years. And uh, he, he emailed me, and, he, and we got together for dinner, and he said, you know, I've been thinking what I should do is use my skills as a researcher. And one of the things I want to research right now is, is the whole phenomenon I'm going through. I want to understand retirement better. And so he actually took that, took his skills as, as a researcher, and studied an issue which was a problem for him at that point because he wasn't too happy being retired. And so now he's a researcher and a writer, and we're, and we're working together on this book, and we're working on another book. Well, that's a great example. Uh, what would, uh, that's taking the skills that he's already used, right. obviously, and, and doing the same thing in a different way. But then what would you say about those who want to actually just start a new career or get another Ph.D. in another field, let's say, you know, something that they may have wanted to do before, but they chose one career over another. Another option may be to just start another career. That does happen, and people do that. In fact, I, I know a person. Uh, I went to my high school reunion. I won't tell you how many years. Well, you can <laughs> tell me. <laughs> Fifty. <laughs> and, and, and I ran into Ken, a friend of mine, Ken Kazoff, and I said, Kenny, what are you doing? So well, I was a neuropsychologist. I'm now retired, and I play four nights a week. He's a piano player, and he was very excited about that, and, and that's his new endeavor, and he really loves it, and he's involved in it. Gives him fulfillment. He makes a few dollars. And, you know, he's really using a skill that he's had. He played when he was a younger kid. I remember him playing. And he's a real talented guy. And he was able to take those skills and sort of rekindle them and build them into a small business. Yeah, that, that's a good I have a brother, actually, who was an engineer. And now he's learning how to play the flute. I think it's great. I yeah. think, you know, some of those things, you know, uh, some of those things are just wonderful. And, you know, that people can explore things, uh, go back to school and I mean, there, there, are, there, are, there are lots of possibilities, uh, and I think that's the point. You have to keep yourself open to the possibilities. Yeah, and, and what you say, I guess, in your book is that if you do that, you'll become self-confident, more focused. Exactly. Yeah, develop some clarity, and I think also you'll have less physical problems and ailments and all of those kinds of things as well if you're focusing on kind of, I don't know if you call it recreating yourself, but... Yeah, I, that's, that's a good way to think about it. Well, think about it. If you have nothing to do, then every ache and pain gets magnified. Exactly. And then you, you know, and yeah. you begin to worry about things. You get a pain in your chest, and you run off to the physician, and you get a pain in your leg, and you run off here, you know, <laughs> because it's hard not to do that. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're fallible, you know, we're fallible people. That, that, that's what we're about. And, you know, so, and I think when you keep yourself busy... And I think there's lots of evidence to show that people who are busy and happy are healthier. And what about you? You gave an example of your, your partner, because if you said you went to your 50th uh, high school reunion... Yeah, I'm, kind of... yeah, yeah, I'm still working. Uh, I'm not sure when I'm going to stop, but I'm starting to think about it. Actually, the book got me to start thinking about it. I hadn't thought <laughs> about it until now. And as I began to, you know, as I began to write and put it together... I'm starting to think about it, but right now I'm satisfied doing what I'm doing. I would think a couple more years, and, and I'll you know think about stop working. Okay. Well, and you're you're the dean of um, the School of Health Sciences at yes, Coro College. Are, are there sometimes it's not one's choice to retire, and I don't know if that's your case, but you know, in certain businesses and universities or whatever it is, they make you retire. You don't have a choice; you have to retire at a certain. Yeah, age. Co uh, colleges and universities tend not to do that unless uh, you become impaired, obviously, and then you have to do that. But uh, there are businesses, and we found people, you know, who. 
were forced to retire. We, we, we call it uh, being pushed into retirement versus being pulled into retirement by being attracted to it. And we found people, for instance, if you're in finance, and you're in your 60s, and you and you're and they're going to downsize, and they're going to and they're going to say it's time for you to go. You're not getting another job, so most likely you you you're going to be forced into retire. Uh, and and I have a friend who was an attorney. They just uh, 65. That was it, and it said goodbye. And right. uh, you know, um, and he had no choice. But. And that brings me to my next question. What about this? Because a lot of people are forced to retire in their 50s and 60s because mm-hmm. they don't have the IT skills. They don't have the the, yep. the skills, to the computer skills. And so uh, they have a lot of other skills. They're quite capable, but they want younger people in those positions. And I think that is beginning to happen more. Oh, I think, I think without a doubt. I mean, you know, when a company downsizes, they 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 start to think well you know this guy doesn't have too many more years anyway so he's likely to plus he costs a lot more remember if he's a senior guy been around a long time he or she costs a lot more and so uh, if you if you push him out then you're going to save more money than if you push out a junior person you might be able to stay in jobs because you can work part time you have the skills yeah. to do that when they're downsizing that could be a plus I don't know if that actually happens but. Yes, it's it's called a bridge job, you know that we that we think about people there, and often we have people who say, well, you know, my boss said it's time to leave, but he still would like me around maybe one or two days a week, and so we think about a bridge. Bridge being obviously between working full time and 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 not working at all, and you know people often will do that, and. It's interesting that many of them feel good about it because they say, I don't need this job. I can just do this when I want to do it, and I'll make a few dollars, and I'm still connected, and I still have some social you know, connections and all that other kind of things, and they, and they do get some benefits from it. And so that does happen. Uh, it depends on the company, of course. And, you know. does, do you think, and we, well, obviously we were talking about marriage and the change in marriage, is the divorce rate much higher? I mean, is there a, a high uh, in divorce rate when people retire? I mean, do you have statistics on that? No, we don't actually. I don't believe we have statistics on 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 the divorce rate, but but we do know that there are that that the quality of marriages change sometimes for the better and sometimes not for the worse. I would suspect that if we do some follow up work with 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 the, the that we'll find that people do get divorced, you know, because if, if in fact now, think about it, that when, when, when you stop working, now your relationship changes, and now there's more time to look at things that may be issues. So I would imagine as a marriage counselor, and I'm sure you, 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 you've done this, that that, 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 that's, uh, that that could lead to divorce, I think. So you were a marriage counselor, so you did change careers. Uh, well, actually, I was a psychologist, and I've always had a part-time practice. But my part-time practice always focused in marriage. I focused not exclusively, but but I did a lot of marriage counseling. Founded a. In fact, I often refer to it as war mediation. If you've if you've done it, you know what I mean. War of the Roses, if you remember that. Oh boy, yeah. I'll tell you that is truer than people think it is. Yeah, it's very well. It's not exaggerated, really. No, it's not no. too exaggerated. I used to do some marriage counseling as well. You're absolutely right. And but, I'm, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm sure you walked out of those sessions weary. Yeah, very weary. It's exhausting. It's enervating to do marriage yeah. counseling. Uh, but you, we only have a few minutes left, but you sure. seem to have done it right. I always like to get kind of the personal story of my authors because you, you, you know, you've 
transitioned into, I mean, even though you are doing similar things, you are, you are a psychologist, but still, and you've stayed married for 45 years. How did yes, you do ma'am. that? <laughs> uh, I have, you know what? I, I married a wonderful person, and we grew together. One of the things I learned from marriage counseling was you got to keep you, you, you got you got to keep the talk going, and and we were very fortunate that we were able to work you know work out our issues. Everybody has issues, and I got a, I, I have a wonderful person. That's great. Good story. All right, so let's talk about the book. Where we can we can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. It's the Retirement Maze. Right. And it's, it's Dr. Louis Primavera, Ph.D. Uh, websites that uh, relate to the book or to you or to the work you're doing. Uh, we we uh, have not yet established a full-blown website, but we but we plan to do so, and it will be called uh, the Retirement Maze. And we will, we we want to offer help uh, to people at some point. Are you the, yeah, I mean, I asked my last guest, are you the only one doing this or examining retirement in this way? Well, you know, I will tell you something. You walk into any of the bookstores and, or go online, and you'll find lots of books on retirement, but most of them are about finances, which we certainly are important. You know, finances gives you, gives, gives you the permission to retire. But, and finances are important, but they're about finances or they're what we call rah-rah books. They're books that tell you how great retirement is. Okay, I think ours is one of the few books and is the only book that I'm aware of that really tries to cover all of the areas that people need to think about. Yeah, and I think you've done that. We have to say goodbye. This has been great. Um, this has been a an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Louis Primavera, author of The Retirement Maze. Well, we have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Hope you had a good morning. Have a good week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.